0: Approximately one year ago, Mel Gibson released his film, The Passion of the Christ. And with this initial debut came the controversy as to who was responsible for the death of Jesus. And that heated debate revealed an ignorance of of why Jesus died on the cross and a lack of understanding as to God's role in this tragic and yet wonderful event. Today, on what Christians refer to as Good Friday, I wanna take a few moments to explain to you how the death of Jesus on a cross has always been God's design to reconcile rebellious mankind to himself. And from the Bible, there are four things that I wanna bring to our attention regarding the death of Jesus. The first is that the death of Jesus was planned by God. And uh, the question which naturally arises is, well, why would that be? I mean, if you stop and think about why would God plan to have Jesus die on the cross, and what purpose would that serve? You know, to understand this, we must uh, go back to when God created man. And when God created man, he gave us the uh, freedom to choose and to make choices. And as any of us know who have that freedom to make choices, there are times in our life where we choose to do those things that aren't right, and uh, there's consequences that follow. Any of us who have had children or grandchildren know that when you give them the freedom to make choices, we run the risk of them making choices that maybe aren't in their best interest or maybe aren't the wisest things to do. But at the same time, we also understand that it's part of the learning curve. It's like you have to step back sometimes in life and say, okay, you know what? Let's see you make a choice. Because what's important behind the choice is the thought process that takes place. Well, when God created mankind, he gave us the freedom to choose. We often refer to it as free will. And God gave Adam the free will to choose to either be obedient to God or to rebel against God. And he gave him some parameters. If you would do these things, I will bless you. If you do this one thing, there will be a curse, there will be a consequence. And that's exactly what happened when Adam willfully, knowingly, and deliberately chose to rebel against God and eat from what was the prohibited tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we find that in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 17. And despite God's warnings of dire consequences, and God said to him that the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die, Adam still sunk his teeth into that forbidden fruit. And that day, Adam died both spiritually and ultimately he would die physically. And because of this separation, this spiritual separation from God, the Bible tells us that Adam's sin, through, through Adam's sin entered into the human race, and that we're all born into the world with a sin nature. You know, David writes that he was conceived in sin in his mother's womb, and the Bible tells us that none of us are righteous, all of us have sinned, Have all fall short of God's glory, we're all like sheep, we've all gone astray, and if you... All you have to do is look around at the evidence and see in small children that you don't have to teach a child to be rebellious. You don't have to teach a child to be disobedient. You don't have to teach a child to say no to you when you tell them to do something. It's not like they go to school and they don't know how to do that before they went to school. And you know, and oftentimes, we don't want to believe our children are capable of these things and we try to blame it on the fact that, oh, you know what, they were perfect kids until they went to school, or they were perfect kids until they started hanging out with this friend or that friend. But the reality of it is, all you got to do is think about the first time that you try to feed them something they didn't want to eat and they went, (laughs) you know, and you kind of go, where'd that come from? You know, because sin is bound up. The Bible tells us sin is bound up in the heart of a child and sin is bound up in every one of our hearts. And because of that, this sin entered into the world and with sin came death, spiritual death, Where you and I are born into the world at enmity, the Bible says, are separated from God at you know enemies of God, rebelling against God, having turned our back on God, that we will ultimately die physically because the wages of sin is death. The consequences of our sin nature is that one day we'll die physically. And so we have this window of opportunity in this lifetime to come to recognize and understand exactly what it is that God wants us to know, and that as all of us are sinners and fall short, all of us, you know, don't measure up to what God's standard is of perfection. And so when we look at this and understand this, we begin to recognize that, you know, that we shall surely die and that, hum- you know, humanity is in a mess, and that's bad news. See, but yet, despite this bad news, we're told that God had a plan in place even before Adam rebelled. And you say, well, how can that be? And their answer is very simple, because God is God and he knows all things. God in his sovereignty knew in advance before Adam chose to rebel against God that, that he would choose to do so. And it doesn't preclude the fact that you and I have the freedom to choose it just introduces a whole new dynamic that's hard for us to comprehend, and that is that God, the creator of all things, infinite in wisdom and understanding and knowledge, can know what you and I are going to do even before we do it. For those, of you who, have, those who have been with us through our study through the gospel of Luke, we realize that when Jesus told Peter, even before Peter denied him, that before this evening was up, three times he would deny him before he would hear the rooster crow. You say, well, wait a minute, did Peter have free will? Absolutely, but was God sovereign? He sure is. So God knows in advance what we'll choose to do even before we choose to do it and yet it doesn't violate our choice in the matter. And so with that understanding, God planned for Jesus to die on the cross even before we're told the foundation of the world. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, a very popular and uh, and familiar verse to many of us, you know, for God so loved the world. But what we have to look at in context is that we're told that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it goes on to say, For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to judge this world, but that the world should be saved through him. For he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And so God said that I'm sending my son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the plan before the foundation of the world was that Jesus would die on the cross. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we see this very clearly where God tells us that even before the foundation of the world, the lamb, Jesus, would be slain and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, 8, speaking of the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. John the Baptist, if you remember the first time he introduced Jesus to the people around him, said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus came as a sacrificial lamb, as it were, the ultimate Passover lamb, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the Bible clearly teaches it's by the the foreknowledge of God or the preordained plan of God. In Acts chapter 2, we see this once again, it reemphasized for us And that is where Peter says, men, in in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Well, this man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, Jesus' death on the cross was planned by God and is the only means of redeeming, which means uh, in the Bible we talk about redemption. It means to buy back that which was lost into slavery. And so the question is, if Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, the question that you have to ask is, well, when was that which was lost lost? And we recognize from what God tells us is, all of us were lost the moment that Adam rebelled against God and sin entered into the world, and through Adam, sin entered into the world through, and into all of us. So God's plan from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, before Adam even rebelled against God, was that Jesus would die on the cross as God's only means to buy back mankind which was lost, to sin and to the enemy and to darkness and to the devil and everything else that's there already been judged by God. Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world. The world's already been judged. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're already judged. But he came into the world to save us from that judgment and that wrath that's to come. So Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, is God's only means for you and I to be reconciled or made right with God. And if this isn't enough to convince you to put your trust in Jesus' death on your behalf and his resurrection, the Bible tells us that the death of Jesus on the cross was also prophesied in the Old Testament, which to you and I basically just means this. Simply put, God tells us in advance that this would happen And not only does he do so, he does it in writing and with precise detail. It's been noted that there are over 34 prophecies that were fulfilled on the day that Jesus died. On that day alone, over 34 prophecies were fulfilled. This isn't in his entire lifetime. This is in one afternoon in the afternoon that we've come together to remember, and that afternoon that Jesus died on the cross, there were over 34 prophecies, which means events that took place that day that God had put in writing hundreds of years before and said, this is what is going to happen. And the reason I'm telling you this is so that you know that I have credibility in what I say. For example, Genesis 3.15, written 1,450 years before Christ, says that on that day, the seed of the woman would be bruised. And the seed of a woman refers to the fact that God's Savior would be born into the world through human birth, which, you know, he could have came any other way. He could have just popped into, you know, into, you know, into our presence, could have just showed up any way that he wanted. But the Bible says that he was born, you know, under the law, he was born of a woman. And that's exactly what we learned from Scripture. He was born to a virgin. Her name was Mary in Bethlehem. And we read the account of how God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and came into this world. 1,450 years before it happened, all throughout the Psalms, which were written hundreds of years before Christ at various times, we read that the fulfillment of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was uttered by Jesus on the cross, that there would be darkness on the earth. We saw that from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon as the sins of the world were poured out upon Jesus. Written hundreds of years before it happened, God says it's gonna be dark on that day from noon on, and there'll be morning as morning for only a son. He goes on to say that he would be despised by people, He would be surrounded by his enemies. He would be pierced in his hands and his feet, and not any bone would be broken. And you think about the fact that 800 and some years before Jesus was ever crucified, God said that Jesus would die that death. The Jews stoned everyone to death, who they wanted to kill, the Romans crucified, and God said in in, in very precise terms that Jesus would be crucified. Not only would he be crucified, but at the end of the day, he would die. He would give up his spirit, and his bones would not have to be broken to hasten death. And God says, watch and pay attention. I'm telling you this in advance so that you know that what I say is trustworthy and believable. He goes on to say that they looked at him, they stared at him, they despised him. They cast lots for his garments. They did not tear his garment, that Jesus gave up his spirit. False witnesses would be called against him. His friends would stand off at a distance. Judas would betray him. He would utter the words, I am thirsty. He would endure the pain and despise the shame. He would be offered sour wine to drink. When they looked upon him, they shook their heads. It, we're told the exact time of death from Daniel nine twenty six, written 532 years before Christ. And it goes on, he was disfigured by the cruelty, he was despised and rejected, he was crucified for our sins, he was offered as an offering for our sin. He didn't open his mouth to defend himself, and the Bible tells us that Jesus never during his trials or on the cross ever, ever threw out insults to those who were insulting him but he continually entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. That he would have a grave with the rich, which is just amazing because every every criminal that was crucified was tossed in a garbage dump outside the gates of the city. But he would be buried with those who were wealthy. And Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, went and had a tomb that was made ready for the body of Jesus to be placed in it. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be numbered with the transgressors. transgressors, meaning that here he would be crucified with those who were criminals. And we see that one to his right and one to his left. And on and on it goes. And the reason that I point this out to you is that I don't think that we understand sometimes the absolute amazing significance of those prophecies being fulfilled. And in order to illustrate it, one of my favorite illustrations that I have ever come across, and it just continually is mind-boggling to me every time that I think about it, is the fact that there was a gentleman, and I'll read this to you. His name is Peter Stoner, who was a man who specialized in probability and statistics. And he took eight prophecies, eight Not 34 fulfilled in one day, not 270 others that were fulfilled during the life of Christ. He took eight prophecies and he demonstrated how absolutely incredible it would be for just eight of those to be fulfilled in the life of any one individual throughout human history. And this is what he wrote. The manuscript manuscript for science speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American scientific, uh, um, American scientific affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group, and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. He says, the mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way and here's what he said, the following probabilities are taken from that book to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. Stoner says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies, quote, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in the 10th to the 17th power. And what that means is, is that it's one in one with 17 zeros following it, that this will be fulfilled in the life of any one person. And in order to help us comprehend what that means, he said this. He said, suppose that you take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. From their day to the present time, provided they wrote them in their own wisdom. The statistical probability of eight prophecies fulfilled in one person is that staggering. I can't even begin to do the math on what 34 would be on one day. Yet alone 270 some over the course of Jesus' lifetime. The the purpose of sharing that with you is this, is that God put into written form what would occur in the future some 800 to 1,350 years before it ever occurred. Staggering evidence, and if this wasn't enough evidence to believe that Jesus is God's Savior, the only way to be reconciled to God, add to the expanding body of evidence the following, and that's this, that Jesus' death on the cross was predicted by Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus knew what he came to accomplish, and he told his disciples before it would even happen. Back to that passage in John chapter 3, before John 16, we read these words in verses 14 and 15, it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 20, we read something very similar where Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he tells them in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, he tells them exactly what's going to happen. He says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now, stop and think about this. Jesus is saying, listen, we're going into Jerusalem and the chief priests, scribes and the elders, the Jewish leaders are going to turn me over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will beat me, the Gentiles will scourge me, the Gentiles will crown me with thorns, and ultimately the Gentiles will crucify me. And what he was saying is, stop and think about something. The Jews knew they couldn't kill or condemn Jesus because they didn't have the the power to do so, that somehow they'd have to get the Romans to do it. Jesus told ahead of time that, you know what, that's exactly what's going to happen. They were going to go up, and they were going to turn him over to the Gentiles, and they were going to manipulate the Gentiles, the Romans, to kill him on the cross. How are they going to do it? They said, hey, you know what? Set Barabbas free, but crucify this guy. And he knew it ahead of time, and he told them ahead of time. I can't emphasize enough the the depth of the, the evidence That Jesus knew in advance what he came to do, told his disciples ahead of time exactly what would happen, and think about just the odds of, well, what would be the chances of getting the Jews to turn Jesus over to the Gentiles, and what would have been the odds of the Gentiles actually follow through and crucifying him? I mean, it all happened because that was God's plan, and Jesus predicted it himself. See, Jesus' death on the cross was planned by God. It was prophesied in the Old Testament so that we would understand that God's word is credible and reliable. And it was predicted by Jesus himself so that his disciples and us today would realize that, you know what, whatever God says is truthful. And he knows about it in advance, and he warns us and tells us of the blessings, and he tells us of the consequences. And the last thing is this, that Jesus, you know, his death on the cross was proclaimed in the Bible as essential to our salvation. There is no other way that you and I can be made right with God. We can't be reconciled with God any other way. God planned for Jesus to die on the cross, period. No ifs, ands, buts, no other way. You know, by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so none of us could boast. You know, there's not Jesus plus works, none of this kind of stuff. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read these words as they relate to this particular day. The Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, even if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice, for I preached, or I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Our focus this afternoon is on the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Word of God. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And the focal point of our message Sunday will be and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, Jesus didn't die as some victim of circumstances. You know, the controversy of who killed Jesus shows the misunderstanding of many. God planned for Jesus to die on the cross. He told us about it in written form. Jesus predicted it before it would even happen. And now we see it's proclaimed in the Bible as essential to our salvation. He didn't die as a martyr for his own cause. He didn't die merely to show us an example of love. His death on the cross is essential to our salvation. The Bible says that Jesus died in order to save lost sinners from the wrath and judgment of God. For I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He died on the cross to redeem those who were under the law, to bring us to God, to give his life as a ransom for many. He died to reconcile us to God. He died to bear our sins. He died to take away our sins. He died to forgive our sins. He died to give us eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificed his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the testimony of God according to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is God's testimony, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he says, And these things I've written to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Do you have the Son? Do you have eternal life? Have you believed upon him? Have you trusted in him? Have you allowed him to gather you to himself? In closing, in Christianity Today, Andrea Midget writes this. She says, when I think of the cross, she says, I see the arms of Jesus, and I hear him saying in Matthew, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, sent, who were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. says, one cold night years ago in North Carolina, says, I went outside to check on some animals then housed in my father's small barn. There was a full moon shining down in bright, brittle light above the pines. It was so cold that the water in the horse's trough had frozen over, which was unusual for the coastal counties. Says, as I went to get an ax to chop through the ice, I noticed a yard chicken, a hen, perched near the trough. With several biddies tucked under her wings, I was impressed with how she had turned her face and frail body of fluff into the icy wing, into the icy wind, and her wings outstretched. And it seemed to me, surely tired, she did this all for the sake of her children. And I was uplifted by what I took to be a gift of an encouragement to my faith. This visual depiction of Jesus's care for me. But it struck me that those chicks had come to the hen. Now, I don't know if she chased them around the yard first, if some came more willingly than others, or if some were still out there half frozen. I only know the chicks I could see had allowed themselves to be gathered up and protected. They had quit fighting what they had no control over in the first place and said, we give up. You do it, Mom. And there is Jesus dying a slow and terrible death with his arms pulled wide. And what a wonderful picture that is of the cross. God's passionate invitation to us to come in from the cold, from the darkness, from spiritual and physical death, and to trust in Jesus Christ God's plan to reconcile you and me to God. Have you come to him? Or is he still chasing you all around the yard, trying to get your attention? Come to him today. For those of us who have come to him and believed upon him and turned from sin and trusted in Christ, my prayer is, as I said, that today we will have a fresh Or a new appreciation for what he accomplished on the cross. Because he paid it all. He didn't just chip in, he didn't give us a down payment, he didn't pay a portion of it. He paid it all for those who would believe upon him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just are in awe of what you accomplished, that your Lamb, your son would be slain before the foundation of the world. And God, it is my prayer that for those who have never entered into a relationship with him and maybe have just been church-going people or try to live a good life, that they would realize that there is nothing that any of us could ever do to be right with you other than to believe what you say, that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the very Son of God, came to this earth and he died upon a cross and that my sins and your sins and the sins of this world were poured out upon him and that whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, may we say thank you and praise you for what you and you alone have done. In Jesus' name, amen.